Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me in them to Genesis chapter 5. An incomprehensibly different world. Today is a bit of a perspective-setting day. In many ways, all of Genesis, early Genesis is perspective-setting, perspective on God's power, on God's love, on suffering and sin, on uh, human nature. Um, but today is, is going to be a, a bit of a unique day. In Genesis chapter 4, we considered a genealogy, the posterity of the line of Cain to the seventh generation after Adam, if you recall. Uh, we talked about Cain, and then we talked about Enoch, and then Irid, and then Methusael, and then Methusael, and then Lamech, and then Lamech to, through his two wives, to his four children, Jabal, Jubal, Tubal-Cain, and then his daughter, Naamah. And uh, as we walked through that, we were talking about the various distinctives uh, of the line and how it was very earthbound. And I believe that's what was being attempted to, to tell us there in Genesis chapter 4, is that the line of Cain, which had begun with Cain choosing to do what he wanted to do rather than what God wanted him to do, and God exhorting him to do well and the Lord would accept him, and Cain rejecting that and rather killing his brother, being banished, having a mark set upon him, being sent out from the, the land of his posterity to the land east of Eden into the land that's called the land of Nod, and uh, there he began to build his family line. And we see as we get to Lamech the idea of his family line becoming very prosperous in the things of the world, very prosperous in culture. They built cities. Uh, they had flocks and herds. They uh, were, were skilled with instruments, building of instruments, and, and no doubt playing of those instruments. And then, of course, Tubal-Cain being skilled in brass and in iron with um, what, what would be a, a fairly strong in insinuation in the text, uh, not so well we see it in, in our English translation, but a, a pretty good insinuation that what he was actually doing with that brass and iron was making weapons. Connecting that to what Lamech said toward the end of Genesis 4 uh, in the Song of the Sword, that whether he had killed a man or whether he was threatening to kill those who would come against him, uh, that we see a, a, a continuation in Cain's line of earthbound choices, of those who have their, their portion in this life. And then last week, we contrasted this with the line of Seth. And we talked about the line of Seth being significantly more than just the idea um, that, that there was a new son born to, uh, to Adam and Eve, or that um, they saw him as a, a replacement of sorts for Abel. Eve did call him a substitute for Abel. She would say, um, there, that the Lord has appointed another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. But as we considered this idea of a substitution combined with Eve's statement made there, we recognize that when Eve, Adam and Eve were speaking of another seed, they were speaking of the idea of a seed, not just in the concept of offspring, but rather another seed in the way that seed was defined in Genesis 3.15, where God promised that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. So we see here that in Genesis 3.15, they recognize that promise of the Lord as a messianic promise, as the first promise that there would be a redeemer who would come and undo what had been done through the deceits of Satan, undo the philosophy of Satan that Adam had, had fallen, had, had stepped into when he chose to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they see that Seth would be the one through whom this line would come and this line 
would eventually come to somebody who would bruise the head of the serpent and whose heel would be bruised. And what we're going to find as we go throughout the entire Old Testament is that this line, this idea that, that Adam and Eve identify here, that Seth would be the substitute and would be the one through whom this seed would come, this tracing of the line is actually what the Bible is doing. And this is fascinating. We're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more in depth a little bit later in the text. But I want you to think about that for just a moment with me. That what we find in the Bible, written over thousands of years, is tracing a single line, a single branch of humanity. And it just so happens that a couple thousand years later, a man would be born, he would do miracles, he would call himself the Son of God, He would die and say that he was going to die for the sins of the world. He would raise again from the dead and be seen of people after after his death. They would see him raised from the dead. And it just so happens that thousands of years of literature traced a single family line that led to this one guy. That sounds a lot to me like design. It sounds a lot to me like there's themes that are being established here. And, and I hope that you see that. I've been trying to emphasize that, that we're not just looking at historical elements here. We're looking at themes being established. Themes that will carry us through every portion of the Word of God. Themes which all eventually point, either forward in the Old Testament or backward in the New Testament, to one man, to one man's life, to one man's ministry. The life and ministry of Jesus Christ alone. And of course, this is very compelling. It's compelling for several reasons. First, it reminds us that the Bible is a single record. That you can read the Bible as a single book, though it was written by some 40 authors, 66 books over thousands of years. It is consistent throughout. A single record inspired by God of the Lord. And second, that the whole Old Testament indeed is meant to point to Jesus. And then finally showing us that Jesus is from God, has been ordained from the beginning as that chosen seed. How else would we have a record written over so many years by so many men, focusing on a single line, going through Seth, then we'll go to Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and then through Mary and Joseph into Jesus. The Old Testament never deviating from the singular focus, showing us that since Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 was written. It was always written to show us Jesus. And today we get to trace that chosen line. Last time we traced, well, last time we began that with Seth, right? But we, we have traced now Cain's line, at least to the seventh generation. That's where we, we stopped tracing his line. No more interest in, in that line. The purpose of giving us that line is finished. It was to show us that there was a portion of man that was rooting his portion in this life. Now it's time for us to see the line of those who chose a different path. As we talked about last time in Genesis 4, the path of those who began to call upon the name of the Lord. And what I'm going to do, because it's a very different chapter, it's a genealogy. And genealogies are not the most exciting things. Now this is one of the more interesting genealogies. We'll talk more about genealogies as we get into our application concepts today. But because of that, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the entire chapter. I'm going to read the entire genealogy for you. 
and then after we've read the entire genealogy, and then we'll hit a couple of highlights of it. Um, I don't necessarily need to explain it verse by verse. Um, genealogies aren't, aren't, it's not necessary to do that. But it is worth reading through. And uh, particularly this one is worth reading it through because it'll give us some perspective. We'll put a few pieces together as we do so. So Genesis chapter 5, if you have your Bibles there, we'll read through the entire chapter together. The Bible says this beginning in Genesis chapter 5 verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were eight hundred years and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years and he died. And Seth lived an hundred and five years and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos 807 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan 815 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were 905 years and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahalaleel. And Canaan lived after he begat Mahalaleel 840 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. And Mahalaleel lived six Sixty and five years and begat Jared. And Mahalaleel lived after he begat Jared eight hundred and thirty years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalaleel were eight hundred and ninety and five years and he died. And Jared lived an hundred and sixty and two years and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch eight hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were nine hundred sixty and two years and he died. And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And Methuselah lived an hundred eighty and seven years and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech 780 and two years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 960 and nine years and he died. And Lamech lived 180 and two years and begat sons and daughters. And he called his name, oh, excuse me, I got into a little rhythm there, didn't I? And begat a son. There we go. And he called his name Noah saying, The same shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands, because the ground which the Lord had cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah five hundred and ninety and five years, and begat sons and daughters. There it is. And all the days of Lamech were seven hundred seventy and seven years, and he died. And Noah was five hundred years old. And Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay, so we trace the line of Seth here, and we trace the line to his 10th generation, the 11th generation after Adam. Now, as we've done throughout the Genesis series, so too I encourage you to do today. Set aside what you know about what comes next, and consider the passage as a clean slate. Having done that to this point, we've been able to see, perhaps with more clarity, 
the express purpose of the record itself. Showing us God, showing us man, showing us the world as we understand it. And to this point, if we were really being introduced for the first time to God, if you'd never read any of the Bible and you were starting from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and you were thinking through it and you understood it and you understood what was trying to be said here, we've talked about all of the things that you would glean about God, about man, uh, from the text. And as you were reading through and you got to Adam and Eve and Adam choosing to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and then Adam immediately falling into fear and into shame and saying, yeah, fear and shame, that's where we see it in the world today. Oh, okay, so fear and shame did not come from God. That was not God's plan. That was not God's intent. That was something that was ushered into this world through man's sin, through the deceits of the wicked one, uh, this this, uh, uh, serpent. Uh, And then there's this curse, and there's this curse of of, uh, the earth resisting. Okay, that makes sense. I see that today. And then we go to Cain and Abel, and you say, okay, Cain, and he was supposed to be worshiping God, but he was actually not worshiping God. And God rejected him for that. Okay, I understand something about God, but God is merciful. And God says, uh, if you do right, I will accept you. So, so God is not just merciful, but he's also, there's no respecter of persons. And I'm learning these things. And, and then Cain slays Abel. And I find here that, that Cain is so angry about his circumstances, his situation. He's so angry with his brother for his brother doing right that he kills his brother. Okay, I see that. That's human nature. I see that in the world today. That's where that comes from. This is a sin nature thing. And, and we... We are able to build an understanding of the world that is around us and where it came from, from what we see in the text. And all of that, to that point, we might say, okay, yeah, this kind of makes sense. Until we get to chapter 5. And here we find something very different from what we would consider the normal human experience. That as you're reading here, Genesis chapter 4 had a genealogy, but it didn't tell its ages. But here you're reading, and you find that humans are living to be better than 900 years old. And this doesn't mesh with our human experience. The fullness of days for a human today is something like 70 or 80 years. And what this tells us is that things were dramatically different before the flood. In that time, things were dramatically different. And much of this will perhaps become more clear as we get through Genesis 6 and all the way really through Genesis 11 and we consider other elements of what was going on in that time. Then we'll come to the global cataclysm that is the Great Flood, a cataclysm unlike anything the world had seen previously or that the world has ever seen to that point. To this point, excuse me, uh, we, we, we perceive that in the future, as God judges the world in the future, that there will be a cataclysm of greater impact and import than that of Noah's day. But to this point, in 2022, the world has seen nothing like what the Bible will describe in Genesis 6 through 11. And there are any number of theories as to why it was that things were so different prior to the flood. Remember, we talked back in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account 
that God used water and, and distinguished water as a part of that creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8, excuse me, the Bible said, And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Here in Genesis 1, if you recall, the Bible says that the firmament of heaven was created, and it was placed in between the waters, the waters which were below the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, uh, with the heaven being in between, thus the earth, and then some firmament that is above, dividing water from water. And we talked about the fact that some have taken this to mean that at that time there was, of course, water on the earth, and then there was water above the earth, above the atmosphere of the earth, and what might be considered a water canopy. And they talked about what the implications of having a water canopy around the earth might be as it would relate to the greenhouse effect and UV light. Of course, we know that water filters out UV light, and so there would be a, a natural filtering of UV light. There would be a greenhouse effect. That might mean that the world was in a, a generally uh, uh, um, temperate climate all year round, uh, that there were no weather events, um, that uh, if there there's no UV light, then there would be no, uh, none of the negative effects of UV light upon this world. UV light is the thing that tends to break things down, right? Uh, you have UV light shining on rubber, and that's what causes the rubber to dry out and to crack. Um, UV light is what uh, uh, gives you um, sunburn, right? So you can check your, the UV index on any given day. And if the UV index is high, maybe you shouldn't go outside without a hat on because you're going to burn your skin because that's what UV light does. It can, of course, uh, cause cancers and change DNA, do damage to DNA, all of these things. And so they said, well, it might be possible that if there's this water canopy that is around the earth, that this aided men in allowing them to not have all of the breakdown that we experience today. And so perhaps with that in mind, people were able to live longer. Uh, maybe because of this canopy, there was a higher oxygen uh, concentration. And, and we know today from uh, primarily from um, athletics uh, that people will up their oxygen levels either before or after um, their, their rigorous and strenuous athletic activities in order to... Uh, compete better and then on the, on the tail end in order to heal faster, recover faster, uh, faster muscle recovery and those sorts of things. Uh, so many people have speculated over the years within Christian circles uh, that perhaps it was a water canopy that was around the earth that caused this to be so different than what we see it today. However, we also said there in Genesis chapter 1 that this doesn't necessarily make sense with exactly what the Bible is saying because the waters were put at the extremities of the heavens, not the extremities of the atmosphere. And when we look at what the heavens are defining there in the scriptures, the heavens were the place where God hung the moon and the stars uh, and the sun. And in that, that is what is defined as the heavens. Well, then the firmament that is above the heavens would not have been the firmament uh, around the, the earth, uh, around the atmosphere of the earth, but rather at the furthest extent of the created universe. Of course, this being said, this doesn't mean that there wasn't some sort of canopy, right? Just because a canopy is not uh, a water canopy uh, of, of the clear sort doesn't mean that there couldn't be one. Uh, the Bible says when the flood comes that it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a lot of water. Uh, and, and that water came from somewhere. Uh, that means the amount of water did need to be in the skies 
And if it's any resemblance to how the world does currently work today, then perhaps that was in the form of clouds. A very, very thick cloud cover can also filter out UV light. Maybe that would mean those things as well. But of course, if there was a tremendously thick cloud cover that covered the earth for all of those years, it would also mean um, that the people before the flood never got to enjoy a bright, sunny, sunshiny day. And who knows if that was the case. All of this to say that there are these theories as to how it was that people lived. And the water canopy theory was one that, that, that was well-received for quite a long time in Christian circles. There are some reasons to believe that maybe that wasn't the case. Um, but we do recognize, even through these speculations themselves, that that was an incomprehensibly different time. Now, just for your reference, modern creation scholars, Bible-believing scientists have, uh, and, and this is both through Answers in Genesis as well as Creation Ministries International, uh, among others, they give most credit today, this longevity idea, they give most of that credit to genetics. And when I started to, uh, to study that, I rolled my eyes a little bit. And the reason why is because everything is blamed on genetics today. Genetics is like the great black box, right, that you can point to anything and you can say, aha, the problem is genetics. Why are you angry? Well, it's because of my genetics, right? I have the angry gene. Why are you struggling with addictions? Well, it's because of my genetics. I have the addiction gene. Why are you inclined to this or inclined to that? Well, it's because of genetics. I have that gene. And so genetics has become the great scapegoat of our time because it's something we're learning about but we don't actually know anything about. And because of that, it's, it's it's the great scapegoat, right? Um, and so when I, when I started reading the modern, the, the more recent literature on what believing scientists have, um, have thought about this, and they say, oh, it's probably genetics, I went, uh-oh, here we go. Uh, we're just, we're just black box blaming genetics for everything, right? Um, but that being said, it doesn't mean that genetics didn't play a part, right? They've done some interesting studies, um, particularly related to um, fruit flies and, and the loss of genetic material and, and such and, and uh, longevity of life. And there are some very interesting things happening in, in the realm of true science, right? And by true science, I mean like the stuff that's observable, testable, and repeatable, not the stuff that you just make up and call the science like we've seen for the last two years uh, in our society. We're talking about real science here. Um, and real science, things that we observe and then can test and then can repeat, and uh, that, that's what real science is, the scientific method. You, know, you dust off those old books um, and, and find that a few of those things still kind of work. Real science indicates that there is perhaps a genetic link to longevity of life. In fact, one of the multitudes of reasons why we would believe the long concept of particularly Darwinian evolution, but evolution as a whole, to be so nonsensical is because we find that evolution, as we observe it, that science thing again, has never observed information being added to the gene code, right? Over the course of this concept of, of animals changing and organisms changing over time, we have never observed information being added, only ever information being removed. And we call those mutations, and some of those mutations we would even consider to be beneficial mutations. We talk about that especially as it relates to antibiotics, right? That there are certain bacteria who become resistant or immune to antibiotics. And we say, aha, see, they are evolving to preserve themselves 
from the dangers of antibiotics because they are a living organism and they're trying to live. But what we find is that these new resistant strains are actually not adding information that is changing them into something better, but rather they become antibiotic resistant because the, the, the antibiotic that we have developed attacks a certain part of the bacteria, a certain part of the, of the organism, and in certain mutated strains of that organism, they lost that part of their of their organism, and so the antibiotic does not have the thing to attack anymore because that part is now gone. It was not an addition of information. It was a loss of information. And second, we realize that genetic, genetic mutations have been happening for, well, since the beginning. And if we consider what the evolutionary perspective would say, which is mutations have been happening for tens upon tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of years, as opposed to what the Bible says, which is that man is about 6,000 years old. Well, if you were to trace the sheer number of mutations in the genetic code over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, that mutational load would be so large that humanity would have been extinct already. A load which cannot be explained away by simple natural selection eliminating various genetic anomalies. So the final question is, why did lifespans remain relatively consistent from Adam to the flood? And then why is it that after the flood it started to move down precipitously? First to about 120 years, as we see in the days of Abraham. And then by, certainly by the days of David, about 80 years. And then it's remained that way ever since. And of this, I want to say a couple of things. I've given you some thoughts. I've given you some, some theories. I've given you some biblical ideas. I've given you some, some, some very, very surface-level scientific stuff. There's some very interesting theories about there. I've, I've given you a couple. We talk about the, the water canopy. We talk about the, the genetics. We talk about those things. We can talk about environmental theories as it relates to oxygen levels and whatever else. And naturally, of course, we don't know why men live shorter lives now than they did then because we, aren't, we weren't there, no one was there, and the Bible hasn't seen fit to tell us. But as the old saying goes, correlation does not equal causation. And this is an important principle. Just because two things happened at the same time does not mean they are directly related. Just because life spans, de- spans decreased at the flood does not intrinsically mean that something about the environment directly had to do with the lifespan shortening. God is the author of all life. And if he wants lives to decrease, lives decrease. If he wants lives to be long, lives are long. Might there have been some environmental factor? Yeah. Would it help the cause of creation science if we could find that environmental factor? It would. But is it directly necessary for us to understand? Well, no, not, not necessarily. Does that mean people shouldn't be looking? No. But God has every right. There are some interesting and compelling scientific ideas coming out, especially as we learn more about DNA. Those things go beyond the scope of our time today. But it is sufficient to know that before the flood, lives were long. Men lived to be 900 plus years old as a general rule. They dramatically decrease after the fact. This might have to do with UV light. This might have to do with genetics. There are some really interesting things about genetics as it relates to um, particularly how 
old Noah's father Lamech was when Noah was born. And what they're finding today about children that are born in the old age of their parents. That may have something to do with some of those things, but we can't really know. They may be related to one another. They may not. But we can certainly say this. Things were dramatically different before the flood. So men lived to be 900 plus years old. Genesis 2.5 told us that in those days God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. It does not explicitly say that that continued all the way to the flood, but we might presume that it did continue all the way so that uh, as far as we might understand it, there was a mist from under the earth that watered the earth. There was no rain. There was a mist that watered the earth. Uh, If there's a mist that waters the earth, if the earth is somewhat temperate, um, if, uh, especially if there is no, um, n- not the normal, normal problems of UV light, then we would expect there to be a, tr- uh, a, a year-round growing season, uh, year-round fertility. Uh, there are no droughts uh, because we're not dealing with the cycles of climate and of rain. We're dealing with a consistent, steady mist that is watering the earth from below. Uh, We uh, find in Genesis chapter 8 that that the seasons did not begin until after the flood, as far as we know. So the climate, like I said, was likely temperate. They were not dealing with winter and spring and summer and fall, but rather it was likely very consistent year-round. And so we see all of these various little snippets of what things might have been like before the flood, and what do we do with all this information? Well, what we don't do is make vast assumptions. That's a lot of fun to do, right? It's a lot of fun for us to sit down and just to think through everything that, all of the implications of what might have been prior to the flood. Imposing our imaginations upon the world in order to draw conclusions and determinations. But we want to be careful. It's wonderful to have an imagination, but we want to be careful that we don't take things so far that we step outside of what we know, and then get distracted by what we don't. We also, however, don't want to impose our limitations upon the world. And that's really more of what this, the, this particular point brings us to. We don't know what things look like. We don't know what technology they had. We know that within something like halfway through these 10 generations, 11 generations from Adam, 10 generations of Seth. Is that at all readable? We, we, we know that by the time of Lamech and his sons, so this uh, comes off the screen ever so slightly there, uh, about, about 4,000 BC is when this, this timeline begins. And we see here, that by about 3,300, we've got Jabal and Jubal and Tubalcane, 3,200, somewhere around there. By about uh, uh, 800 years, 700, 800 years along the path there, we know that they had iron, that they had brass, that they had instruments, that they were building cities. We know that these things were happening. We think through that idea that they were learning so much, growing so much. We think about the fact that they lived to be 900, 900 plus years old. We think about the fact that they did not have some 200 generations of, uh, of decay and mutations in their bodies and minds like we do today. And you can imagine the kind of progress 
that that society very well might have made. I mean, think about it with me. Men of 10 generations could put their heads together to solve problems over the course of 500 years. Imagine what brains unencumbered by all of those generations of decay and mutations could do with hundreds of years of time to explore and to build and to experiment. And we can, we can even gain some perspective on this. The printing press was invented in the 1400s, about 600 years ago at this point. Since that time, 600 years, we have seen a mass distribution of knowledge that was nearly impossible before the printing press. Before that point, you could get books, but the, the, the expense that it would take to, to copy a book, to distribute even pamphlets, much less books, was just immense. The only people that could do it were the richest people or the richest institutions in the world. And then the printing press comes along and all of a sudden people are able to access knowledge for themselves. Somebody who knows something doesn't just have to hope that they can find someone skilled enough to pass his knowledge down to, but instead they could write it down and someone else, somewhere, anywhere else in the world could find that book and could pick up where he left off and could continue. So that for 600 years now, not even really, if you think about how long it took for the printing press and for, 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 for freedom to get to the point where people could actually do those things, for, but we'll say for 600 years now, we have seen this process of mass distribution of knowledge, people writing things down, passing what they know from generation to generation so that we can build upon the progress that others had made and thus progress in society. And now we find ourselves 600 years later in a world that, I mean, even a person 200 years ago would not recognize. Imagine what, not just being able to live for 900 years, but imagine what living for 900 years, having 10 generations of the same family among all of the other families, having all of those minds, all of that experience, the ability not just to say, well, I've perfected my craft over 40 years, and now I'm going to hand it to someone else who can take that and run with it. I'm going to perfect my craft for 400 years. And while I'm doing that, 40 years into perfecting my craft, I've got an apprentice that is as good as I am. And we can perfect it together for another 380 years. And in another 40 years, we'll get another one, and we can perfect it together for another 340 years. Imagine how good you could get at stuff. Imagine what that might have been like. 500 to 1,000 years of that, but not just hoping that someone will pick up where you left off, but the greatest minds of a generation being able to combine themselves together for 10 generations to see things accomplished, to solve problems. We cannot even begin to assume what kind of technology they might have had. And I'm not, I'm not trying to draw your mind to lost city of Atlantis type stuff per se, right? But what I can draw your mind to is this. Something as grand and mathematically precise as, say, the pyramids in Egypt. They're dated. The flood is actually this dark line right here. The pyramids in Egypt are dated around here. Now, if archaeology is right in their dating, and that's a big if, but if they are, would it surprise anyone that the pyramids were not built by the Egyptians, but by the pre-Diluvian civilization? Could something like the pyramids last through a great flood? Well, unless there was a fault line right there, why not? 
They get covered in water, then the water drains off. These things are there. Post-flood civilizations find them and say, wow, these things were made by gods because they're so mathematically precise and so incredibly built. Is it possible that those, that stonework that they talk about in Bolivia, stones that are cut so precise that they didn't even need mortar to put the pieces together because they fit so precise that you can't even fit a piece of paper between them, that people will go down there today and say our laser tools could not even, would have a hard time cutting stones as precise as these stones are cut, and yet they were cut by some ancient civilization? Is it not possible that maybe it took some guy 500 years to figure out how to do that, but that's okay because he still had 400 years left to live to do it? And by the way, he had a bunch of other people who were just as smart as he was, who had just as many years to perfect their craft, doing it with him. See, that, that, that seems to make sense to me. I can, I can, I can make, make that, make, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. In my, it makes a whole lot more sense than thinking that some backward civilization somewhere figured out all of this mathematical precision. But then where did all that knowledge go if that knowledge was there, if the knowledge to build the pyramids was there, if the knowledge to, to build the, such, such precise uh, um, stone work was there, where did it go? How did that civilization disappear? Well, if there was a great global catastrophe, that might explain where all of that went. And so this is what I encourage you to do as you think through. As we're thinking through this genealogy that talks about 900 years, Yes, it's, a, it's very interesting to let your imagination run wild. And if you've got some free time, you know, that might be more useful than a lot of other things you do with your time. But what, it's really, what it really can do is it can open our minds up to the possibilities of what that time might have been like. And it can actually stop us short of making a bunch of assumptions as it relates to things. I'm simply saying that the time before the flood was alien to us. And this is not just important for us in relation to our perspective on history, but also as it relates to the contemporary, to the now. Because today, scientists are making dramatic claims. They're making dramatic claims about all sorts of things. They're making dramatic claims about fossils. These fossils were millions of years old. Dramatic claims about genetics and what... What, 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 what's baked into our gene code. Dramatic claims about the climate, right? I think uh, within, within the ticking clock, we're at eight years now before, before the world is done, right? Um, maybe nine. I think it was 12, you know, three or four years ago. Dramatic claims about these things. But those claims are based upon some assumptions, right? And one of those assumptions is that the earth and humanity has always operated as it does now. At least for hundreds of thousands of years. Scientists, they, they look at this physical evidence that they dig up and they interpret that physical evidence on the basis of major assumptions about their certainty of the consistency of the world. But what if 4,000 years ago there was such a dramatic earthly cataclysm that it fundamentally changed the entire climate of the earth. That the, the things that we see today, the way that the earth operates today, the climate as it 
is, is, is happening today is not necessarily an extension of that original earthly design, but it's an extension of the earth reeling from what happened 4,000 years ago. As a matter of fact, some creation scientists say they feel as though the earth is actually still settling from that cataclysm. It was so dramatic and so violent as it relates to what happened and, and the changes that took place in that time. The Bible tells us that 4,000 years ago, things changed dramatically. Things were very different before it happened. We don't know all the ways that, they, that it was different. We're going to talk about more of those, not next week, but the week after and the week after that in Genesis chapter 6. There were giants in those days and those sorts of things. We're going to talk about what all of that might mean and might not. But the world as we know it today is a product of two great events. And this is, this is what we see Genesis 5 leading us toward. The first great event was the fall. When Adam took of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The second great event was the flood. And where we are today is a product of the fall and the flood. And all of the ins and outs of exactly what that means, we don't know. Lord willing, we'll know one day when we step into eternity. But we know that things were very different before the flood than they are now. And we aren't there yet, but when we get there, we'll consider some of those changes. So, we first consider the reality that things are dramatically different before the flood. I must hasten on here. Uh, the second thing that I want to talk about just briefly, and we're actually going to talk about Enoch, sort of, for the entire message next week. But I want to talk about Enoch. Enoch uh, was the seventh generation after Adam. And it's interesting to note that Enoch was the seventh generation from Adam and Seth's line uh, when Lamech was actually the seventh generation in Cain's line. So Enoch lived around the same time as Lamech, and they were, they were doing their thing at about the same time. That's going to particularly come up next week as we talk about Enoch's legacy in the, in the scriptures. Um, Lamech, we know, was persisting in his wickedness in the line of Cain, the men who had their portion in this life. Enoch, in his generation marks the first departure from the, from the regular genealogical formula. So in the formula, even, even as I was reading in the formula, I got a little bit formulaic, right? And I started misreading because I was just working through the formula. Um, but Enoch didn't fit the formula, did he? Instead of Enoch lived and begat sons and daughters, it was Enoch walked with God. To that point in the Genesis 5 formula... So-and-so lived X number of years. He had a child. He lived another X number of years. He died. But in Genesis chapter 5, 21 to 23, we, we read this. Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. Okay, good, normal. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 600 and five, uh, 300, excuse me, and 60 360 and five years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So, several unique things about this passage. First, of course, we find that rather than Enoch living for 300 years after he begat his sons, the text explicitly says he walked with God. There was something special about Enoch's relationship with God. And what we might think as we put the pieces together, we'll talk a little bit more about it next week, is that Enoch may very well have been the first prophet of God. We know he was a prophet of God. Whether he was the first, we don't know, but he might have been the first of those true prophets of God. 
And of course, this is also indicated by the fact that he lived to be only 365 years. Now that's a lot shorter than most men in the day. The next shortest was Lamech at 777. But the Bible, but Lamech died. The Bible doesn't say Enoch died. Much to the contrary, the Bible says he was not, for God took him. This is explained in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Enoch is thus one of two men in the Bible who has never physically died. Enoch and Elijah. Elijah was also translated that he would not see death according to 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. And as we talk about in our Revelation series some years ago, I think it was in 2018 or 2019 that I preached that now, but as we talked about, this has led some to believe that those two witnesses of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the two witnesses that preach the gospel and, and that represent God before the world, some believe that those two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah because, of course, those two witnesses are going to be killed and then they're going to rise from the dead and there have only ever been two men who have not died and maybe they need to have their chance to do so. So maybe it'll be Enoch and Elijah. Others think it might be Moses and Elijah, whatever it might be. Um, many people believe Enoch will be one of those because of this idea that he was translated. Now, there's one more reference to Enoch in the Bible, and I'm going to devote my entire sermon next week to that, and that's a reference in Jude, so we'll get there next week. But that's the legacy of Enoch, and as you're reading through a genealogy, you don't have to read through genealogies all the time. Maybe there's a time where, you know what, it's just a genealogy. I'm going to move past that. It's not going to bear much spiritual fruit in my life. But be sure that every once in a while you take time to think through the things that are happening in that genealogy, because every once in a while you come across a little something, like this idea, Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for the Lord took him. Well, if I just skip, oh, I see all the begats, time to skip. I've missed something that the Bible wants me to know. Next, the oldest recorded man. The oldest recorded man in the Bible here we find to be Methuselah. He lived five years longer than his son Lamech, who died at 777, and he lived until the year of the flood. But he did seem to die a natural death. The Bible does not say that Methuselah was taken in the flood. Much to the contrary, we would believe that Methuselah, maybe he was promised by God. Of course, he was the son of, uh, of, of Enoch, and maybe he was promised by God that he would live to see the, 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 the final days, um, but then he died in the year that the flood came. And so now we consider Noah. He was born of Lamech, not um, the bad Lamech of Cain's line. There's overlapping names there. There's a, there, um, there's a uh, Enoch, there's a Lamech who was born of Methuselah, right, rather than Methuselah. So there's a lot of overlapping between the, the names in Cain's line and the names in Seth's line, but they're not the same line. Born of Methuselah, Lamech was 182 years old when Noah was born. And when his son was born, Lamech named him Noah. And that word meant rest. And that's specifically because, as we read in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, the Bible says, The same shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands, because of the ground which the Lord had cursed. Lamech prophesied, or perhaps it was that it was Enoch, that, that had prophesied previously, of one who would come and who would bring a measure of rest or of comfort specifically concerning the toil of, the, of man's hands as it relates to the ground which the Lord had cursed. 
Now, we'll reference this promise significantly more after the flood, but I believe that what this has to do with is the fact that before the flood there were not seasons. And because there were not seasons, and before the flood there was this mist, that means things would have grown all the time. They would have grown perpetually. And if there is a perpetual growing season, then there is no rest. Right? There is constant weeding. There is constant toil. There is constant maintenance. There is constant harvesting. And while that sounds good from a production uh, standpoint, and it's all well and good now that we have all of the technology that we have at our disposal, that would have been extremely difficult if you are a man working, toiling with, the, with, with, with your, your hands, right? Doing the work yourself. And so we'll, we'll talk more about that when we, get to, um, when we get to the flood. So we've learned of the dramatic differences of the pre-flood society. We've considered the legacy of Enoch. We'll talk more about him next week. Methuselah. We've been introduced to Noah as well as his sons. Born, Noah being born at... Uh, his sons being born at, at, at 500 years age. So Noah was 500, there we go, when Shem, Ham, and Japheth were born. So he was significantly older than most of the other men when his sons were born. Uh, and all of this leads me to one more point of emphasis as we close today. Don't ignore genealogies. As I said, they are a thing in the Bible that we tend to skip. And from a spiritual perspective, it doesn't necessarily matter There isn't going to be any nugget in the genealogies that is going to hit you like a ton of bricks and fundamentally change your Christian life. It's never going to happen. Unless it does. And what I mean by that is this. Genealogies serve several important functions in the Bible. Genealogies, they validate history. How do we know that we aren't dealing with myth or legend? Many people say that, well, the stuff before the flood, that's just myth. That's just legend. Well, genealogies are, exist in, in, in this portion of Scripture. Now, you can say maybe those genealogies were made up. That's fine. But what you can't say is that the Bible is not presenting this as history. And how do we know that the Bible is not presenting this as history? Because they give us genealogies. One that connects Adam, not just through to Noah, but Adam all the way to Jesus. And Jesus was real. And if you follow that genealogy back, David was real. If you follow that genealogy back, Judah was real. And if you follow that back, uh, Jacob was real, and Isaac was real, and Abraham was real. And then we're going to say, now it's all made up before that. But why? Now, you can say that. That's fine. You can believe what you'll believe. But don't say the Bible's saying that. Because the Bible tells us Jesus is real. And Abraham is real, and David is real, and they're all real. And the Bible continues that genealogy all the way back to Adam. So the Bible's saying, this is real. And, and we've got to deal with that. We can say the record is wrong. That's a debate about inspiration and preservation. But we can't say the Bible doesn't present this as a record of narrative and historical fact. Not a record of legend or of myth. Second, genealogies indicate focus. And this is what I told you Earlier, This is what I was saying earlier. Genealogies don't trace every child. And this is where genealogy can change, could change your Christian life. You're wondering, you're doubting, what about this Jesus thing? Is he really real? Things could be made up. Sure. Of course. It all could be made up. But interestingly enough, these genealogies don't trace every child of every man. They trace one child. Generally one. When we get to Noah, it'll trace three 
and then down to one again, and that would be Shem, right? And then we'll branch off a little bit, and then it'll come down to one again. And we'll keep focusing in on one branch, one strand. Now, the Bible is a book that's filled with a lot of history. What does God want us to focus on? The genealogy actually tells us. There's a singular line that God wants us to focus on throughout the biblical record. It is undeniable that there is a focus to the Bible. And it's undeniable that the Bible was written over generations and generations by multitudes of different men. And yet they maintain this laser-like focus on one particular line. Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, Jesus. That's fascinating, isn't it? This line, written over thousands of years, focuses on a singular line. And it brings us to Jesus. Next point, genealogies contain nuggets of important ideas. We see this phrase, Enoch walked with God. That little change tells us something. Other genealogies help us learn other lessons. Do you know that a genealogy can teach you something about grace? You remember back in Joshua, there's quite a bit of time devoted to the events surrounding Jericho. And within that, the spies go into Jericho and they're fleeing for their lives because they, people realize they're spies and they hide out in a harlot's, in a prostitute's house. Her name is Rahab. And Rahab preserves them and they say, because you've preserved us. And she says, because I've preserved you, will you save me and my family? They say, anyone in this room, when we come, will be saved. And so that happens. The walls fall. Rahab's section of the wall does not fall. Rahab is spared. We don't hear anything more of Rahab until we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And you're reading the genealogy of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, you find out that Rahab the harlot became the wife of a man who became the great-grandmother. She became the great-grandmother of King David. Rahab the harlot, who was of the Canaanite line, who was a cursed line of God that God said, destroy all of them, and on top of that, two generations later, there was a woman named Ruth who was of the Moabite line, which God said may never come into the congregation up until the 10th generation. And both Rahab and Ruth, through faith, find themselves not just in Israel, but in the line of Jesus himself. A genealogy teaches us that. And by the way, genealogies don't normally talk about women, but they mention those two women in Matthew chapter 1. Because they're trying to teach us something. There are nuggets in these things. Genealogies don't need to become a staple part of your biblical diet. But it would serve you well to consider them from time to time. Finally, and this is kind of coming back to that, that focus idea. I, I should have put those two together. I should have flipped two and three, but I didn't. So, Fourth and finally, genealogies prove messianic intent and design. Thousands of years before Jesus came, Jewish writers were establishing the foundational importance of his arrival in many ways. Messianic prophecies, of course, Jesus fulfilled those. 
the law, the temple, these things were all pictures of things which Jesus Christ would do and would fulfill. The feasts, they were all uh, indications of, of things that Jesus would bring to bear. Prophetic uh, elements. But the genealogies did this as, at all, uh, as well. And so I ask you this question again. We talked about the fact that, that, that of all of the lines that Jewish history could have traced, it traced this line that happened to end with Jesus. What are the chances? What are the chances? You say, well, yeah, I mean, I mean there were probably a bunch of men around Jesus' time and, and uh, a bunch of men that were of that Davidic line, right? And so, so yeah, there's, there, 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 at least it's a chance. Okay, what are the chances that of that branch of David's line, David and Solomon and, and, and so forth, that from that line is going to come the great miracle worker? From that line is going to come someone who would even proclaim to be God in flesh, much less actually heal, much less actually raise the dead, much less actually proclaim himself to be Messiah. Claiming divinity, doing great miracles, teaching among men, dying as he promised, being seen of men after his resurrection. Sure, maybe that man, maybe that, that, that unique man that has some sort of supernatural ability finds his way into history somewhere. But what are the chances that that unique man finds his way into the exact line that a book written over thousands of years by multiple authors is focusing upon consistently? Genealogies show us that there is a design happening here. And if we have the eyes to see it, you can't unsee it. God has done his work. He has, he has traced history with a very, very fine tip. And he has brought it to its expected end in Jesus Christ. And the fact that we are tracing Shem, the fact that, we are, that, we're, tracing, that we're tracing Adam and then Seth and then Noah and then Shem, the fact that we're doing that in Genesis screams to us that God had a design from the beginning. Unless from the very first page of the Bible, God was not just compelling men to write history, but he was inspiring men to trace the history of a man. This book doesn't, would, would not make any sense. It's impossible that this book would be written unless there was a bigger plan. And this book has been written, and it's in our hands. And that tells us that there was a bigger plan. And that Jesus was the culmination, the very pinnacle of that plan. And so, I just read to you a genealogy today. But boy, there's actually a lot that we could take from it, huh? There's a lot of things to think about. But may we carry this idea with us today. And may we carry it into our reading of the Bible and into our study of the Bible and into our conversations with others about the Bible. That the Bible is not just a collection of works written by men. It's a single record focused upon one man, and that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. That from the very beginning, God had a plan in this book being penned, and that was to show us Jesus. And thank God we are living in a time where we get the whole record. So we, you don't have to wait until the rest is written. Right? Because it's already been written. And we thank God for that. And now it's ours to live, to tell, to proclaim. 
And may we do so in our lives. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.